0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, We are in Joshua 6 this morning, continuing our series in the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, would you turn in them uh, with me to Joshua chapter 6. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Joshua is the sixth Book of the Bible. Uh, So it'll be right after the first five. Most Bibles that I have seen have a table of contents, so you can find the page number for Joshua 6 at the front of your Bible in the table of contents. And as you flip there, uh, I just wanted to make a couple of comments. I've made these before, but about our particular preaching method here at Journey Church. Uh, See, we strive to preach uh, through books expositionally, or through large texts of Scripture, uh, doing expositional preaching. And if you don't know what expositional or expository preaching is, no problem. Uh, That term just simply refers to taking the words of Scripture, reading them, explaining them, and applying them to our lives. And most often, expositional preaching is done through successive chunks of Scripture. So you move from one text right into the next. You find the seam in the text to figure out where one idea ends and the next idea begins. We have uh, a lot of reasons, and in fact, I could walk through about 10 to 12 reasons why we do that, Uh, but I wanted to explain three this morning that'll be helpful for understanding the particular text we have in front of us. So one of the reasons why we do expositional preaching here is that man's opinion, which is to say my opinion, Jim's opinion, anybody else who stands up on the stage to preach God's word, uh, our opinion is bound to be flawed because we are, in fact, flawed people. I am a sinner. Uh, I know many of you did not need me to say that out loud. You knew that about me, uh, to my embarrassment or shame. Uh, But I am a sinner, and because of that, uh, my opinion is often uh, wayward or flawed. So the only way in which I can guarantee that when I am preaching, that we are thinking about what God would have us think about, rather than what my fallen human mind would have us think about, is to anchor the message of the morning in and around Scripture. And what I mean by in is that my sermon comes out of the words of God, that I use God's Word to try and figure out what He would have me say rather than going to God's Word to, figure, to find in it what I want to say. And then around God's Word in the sense that everything you have experienced up to this point in the service has been dictated and guided by the passage. So the songs which Joel selected, which we sang, Uh, The text which Bryce read and the prayer which Scott prayed on our behalf all connect into the themes which we will pull out of Joshua chapter 6. So we anchor our message, we anchor what we're doing, expository preaching, in God's words so that we know we are not following the mere opinions of a man. Second, we, uh, we go through successive texts because that enables us to build our knowledge and our understanding of what's going on. So this morning, we will be in Joshua chapter 6. We have preached through Joshua 1 through 5, and you will see that there are things in Joshua chapter 6 which, abstracted from their context, don't make any sense. You need to understand what happened in the cohesive narrative that Joshua tells from the first chapter to the sixth chapter in order to see what's taking place. And third, we want to make sure that we deal with God's word as we find it which is to say, when we open up the Bibles, and those of you who have read your Bible, who have studied your Bible, who have been walking with Jesus for a while, have probably encountered this, but we need to understand that in Scripture, there are things that are difficult to understand or difficult to deal with. C.S. Lewis said that that's because the Bible comes from a culture which is not our own. And because it is not our own, every human culture finds both something to affirm in the Bible, but also something that challenges it. And so, too, we today find all three of these reasons are important as we approach Joshua chapter 6. Joshua 6 is a difficult passage. In fact, when the Oxford evolutionary biologist and author Richard Dawkins wrote his book, The God Delusion, for a uh, significant portion of that book, he has his finger right in Joshua chapter 6. In fact, Richard Dawkins, speaking of the book of Joshua and this text in particular, our text this morning, Uh, he writes this. This text is remarkable for its bloodthirsty massacres that it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. The Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the Promised Land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. That thought in Joshua chapter 6 leads Richard Dawkins to conclude thus, God, the God of the Old Testament, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, Megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent, bully. And yes, I had to practice that to make sure I would pronounce all of those words properly. I would have done it in a British accent, but I neither have the accent nor the teeth of Richard Dawkins, so I avoided doing it. <laughs> However, I believe you only get this concept out of Joshua chapter 6 when you abstract Joshua chapter 6 from the rest of what is taking place. I think, and I'm going to try and make the case this morning, that Richard Dawkins, Dr. Dawkins, is reading the Bible poorly because he is not reading the Bible as a coherent narrative from Genesis 1 to Joshua 6. That is to say, when we read the Bible, we must approach it as a narr- in its narrative and biblical contexts. And as well, as we approach Joshua 6, we must submit our proclivities, our opinions, to God's Word. Friends, we are not the arbiters of truth. You and I do not decide what is true about the world. We receive truth. We submit to truth. And we allow truth to judge us rather than standing in judgment over it. So with that in mind, I hope you have turned and found Joshua chapter 6 in your Bibles. And I would like to pray for us asking the Lord to be working in our midst as we strive to understand this passage this morning. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, it is with a bit of nervousness that I open to this text of Scripture. God, I know that every week we have in our midst visitors, some who are exploring the Christian faith, others who are uh, trying to get to know us as a church. In your providence and in your goodness, this is the text in front of us this morning. And so we, be, we begin with praising you. You are good. Your word is true. Your attributes, your character, and your work are all beautiful. Would you help us to see that this morning in this text? And not just for the visitors among us, but, Father, for our people, because I know that many who come to journey each and every Sunday, they gather here in need of encouragement. And at face value, it may not seem that this text offers much to us. So, Father, I ask you to work in this message, to work in this text, to work in our hearts, so that the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth, may be honoring to your sight, and edifying to your people. We ask this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're going to walk through Joshua chapter 6, taking it chunks at a time. So we're going to start at the beginning in verses 1 and 2. And Joshua 6, 1 and 2 are essentially setting the scene, helping us understand what's going on, what uh, is taking place geographically and in the story. So Joshua 6, 1 and 2. Now Jericho was shut up inside because or, and outside because of the people of Israel. No one went out and none came in, and the Lord said to Joshua, see I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. So let me pause there and just point out right off the bat in this text there's no surprise Jericho, if you have been with us, then you know from uh, Joshua chapter 2, Jericho is aware of the mighty work of God on behalf of the people of Israel. They have heard of how God overcame the gods of Egypt and their avatar Pharaoh at the Red Sea. They have heard of how God helped the Israelites defeat armies throughout the book of Numbers and Exodus. And so they have heard these things. They were aware that spies came and spied out their land, and they, don't, they didn't catch them, so they don't know what sort of military intelligence they took back to the army of Israel. And so they did what every city would have done. They fortified themselves. They barred the gates. They locked the doors. They shut everything up in order to be safe inside. And they were safe inside and preparing with what we read as mighty men of valor. Now, just a little bit of background about this phrase. Uh, The concept of mighty men is actually found throughout ancient literature, and one of the things that it points to is soldiers who were empowered either by a hero or champion or a pagan deity. So these are soldiers who believe themselves to receive power either from maybe the king, which is referenced in the text, maybe he's a great warrior king, and so they believe that they have uh, uh, multiplied strength by fighting alongside him, Or maybe, because it is a pagan group of people, as we have learned earlier in the book of Joshua and in the Pentateuch, Uh, maybe it is because uh, they believe in a pagan deity who will empower them for war. But you have these mighty men, and then it says they are mighty men of valor. And this notion of valor is tied to strength, and particularly strength with competence, which means these guys are expert soldiers. And they are stationed within a fortified city of Jericho. So what this all means is that you have trained and skilled soldiers ready to defend a fortress. It's a good strategy. It's the standard strategy of their day. It's generally harder to attack a military stronghold than to defend one, And so they're counting on that, and moreover, the archaeology around the city of Jericho that we've discovered thus far would lead us to believe there's good reason to believe that they had a spring or a well within the city that the city was based around, which would mean they can lock the door without any fear of losing their livestock or their people because they had access to water. That is one of the things that makes Jericho so hard to conquer. It is a well-fortified position and strategically placed. So that is the setting for the battle of Jericho. The text continues, verses 3 through 5. You shall march around the city, all the men going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn, be, ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat, down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now here's where the text gets a bit unusual. If Jericho operates by the standard strategy, Israel does not. God speaks to Joshua and gives him a strategy which involves marching around the city, but does not involve any of the standard military invasion tactics. It doesn't involve burrowing under the wall, it doesn't involve trying to punch a hole through the wall, nor does it involve building ladders to try and get over the wall. Rather, they are to make circuits around the city six times without making a sound, without making any military maneuvers, without, based off of my reading of the text, any seeming strategic purpose for doing so. They're just supposed to walk around the city. So they do so six times on six consecutive days, and then on a seventh day, they walk around six plus one times. So they walk around six times again, add one to that, and then they're supposed to shout, and the fortress walls will fall down. Now, many scholars have pointed out the oddity of this military strategy, and it's a fair comment. It is unusual. It does violate human wisdom. But it tells us something very important. It's not that the Israelites have no strategy. Rather, it is that their strategy is God. Their strategy is that for as long as they've known, for every story they've been told, God has always fought for them. Their strategy is that God is faithful, God's word is true, and God already told them what he would accomplish. I said when I preached on Joshua chapter 1 a few weeks back, That if the battles of the book of Joshua depend on the strength and courage of soldiers, we need to understand and note that it is not the strength and courage of good tactics, superior weaponry, or better training. It is the strength and courage of good theology and meaningful spirituality. Spirituality being the word that we use to describe our connection with God. That is to say that the strength and courage Joshua and the the Israelites were commanded to have in Joshua chapter 1 is one that comes from thinking rightly about and living rightly before God. And we see in the next section of text probably the most critical aspect of how we live rightly before God. Look with me at verses 6 through 14. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua commanded the people, the seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord went forward blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took the ark of the Lord, and the, pre- and the seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets continually blew. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into camp, so they did for six days." Here's what we see here. If the strategy is, in fact, God, then we need to understand obedience to God will always require faithful transmission of his word. God speaks to Joshua in this text. Joshua speaks to the priests. The priests pass the message on to the people, and the people obey Joshua just as he commanded them. Friends, the purpose of this is that we have a word-based faith. We stand and fall on the transmission of the word of God. I take that to be in several directions. We stand and fall on the transmission of the word of God first from the page into our own hearts. We stand and fall on whether we can get the meaning of the text into the application of our lives. Second, we stand and fall as a faith in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, meaning we strive to translate God's word from language to language faithfully. We happily here at Journey Church support a missionary family who strives to translate God's word faithfully because we believe where God's word is found, there the gospel can go forth. Their salvation and sanctification will take place. God's word does not return void, so we strive to transmit it faithfully from language to language. And third, we have talked a lot, and in fact you could say one of the themes of this year at Journey Church is the Great Commission, so we have talked a lot about what it means to transmit God's word faithfully from generation to generation. From a generation that is outside of us, that does not yet believe, to a generation that is in our midst and we are seeking to raise up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. If we do not faithfully transmit God's Word, if we don't translate it well, apply it well, and teach it well, we will fall. I will say that I believe that God, in His faithfulness, always sustains the transmission of His Word in each generation, but He does not necessarily do so in large numbers, comfortable contexts, or with ease of access. Our culture was once considered Christianized, and now we use the term secularized to describe the trajectory of our culture. In many ways, this is an image of what it looks like to take for granted the biblical and theological resources that we have had at our disposal for generations. We have a glut of theological resources. I have more theological books in my office, than most pastors for most of church history had ever even seen. You can access these through Amazon, through other websites, through Christian bookstores. There's actually a Christian bookstore in Tucson. I didn't know if you're aware of this. I hadn't seen one. It was like coming across some sort of artifact, like they had uncovered the Christian bookstore down deep under the ground of Tucson. All of the Christian bookstores in my hometown had closed down. We have access to immense resources that will help us understand and apply and teach the Word of God rightly, passing it on successively. But we have in many places and in many ways neglected to do so. We need to be people, friends, who drink deeply of God's Word, who study it intently which does not always mean with an academic degree, but who dedicate our lives to understanding and applying this. And as we grow in knowledge of God's word, grow in knowledge of theology, and grow in knowledge of what it means to follow Christ, meaningful spirituality, we will be better equipped to handle the shifting sands of our culture and the criticisms of the scriptures and of the Christian faith. This is important as we come to the book of Joshua and as we come to Joshua chapter 6. See, we're about to turn now to verses 15 through 22, and this is the passage of Scripture which Richard Dawkins puts his finger right on when he writes the God delusion. Verse 15. "'On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times.'" It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves... "...from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction, and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat." So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go to the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. I'm sure you felt the tension. I'm sure if I asked you, you could pick out the verse, right? The verse that Dr. Dawkins has his finger on is verse 21. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old. Of this, again, Richard Dawkins says, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilental, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. And let me start by just acknowledging that we may feel uncomfortable with this text. Again, this is one of the places where Scripture leans against our culture rather than leans with our culture. But I suggest that we ought not let Dr. Dawkins dictate how we read the Bible. But let us put this text, which is admittedly difficult, let us put it, situate it in the broader story that Joshua is telling, and the overall meta-narrative of scripture that runs from Genesis through Joshua. So first, let us think about what this story means in the chapter itself. So put Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, in Joshua 6 as a whole. What does that tell us? Well, if you think back to the strategy, again, I pointed out, and I think you can open up every commentary in my office, and you will not find a military explanation for what the people of Israel were to do. I think what that means is that the explanation must not be tactical. It must have another purpose. And I have to think that at least one of those purposes, if God has many for that particular instruction, is God's patience. He is giving them time to surrender, to flee, or more importantly, to join. As well, when we consider the day of battle, if you have six circuits around the city of Jericho on six successive days and then you have seven circuits on a seventh day, that seems to me to inform the person watching that some kind of escalation is taking place. Imagine yourself, you are a soldier on the wall of Jericho, and you are looking down, and you have seen them go around. You have seen this happen. But today, it's not just once and they go back to camp. Today, they continue their march. Would you not think that some sort of escalation is taking place? Something has changed Something is about to happen. You might not be aware that seven is an important number to the Israelites, but you obviously can see that today will be different. Here's my point. That is 13 reasons, six, six, and one. Thirteen times, 13 opportunities to flee, join, surrender. Surrender. Second, if we back up and we put Joshua 6.21 in the context of Joshua as a whole, we will find that this cannot be a story of genocide or xenophobia. This cannot be a story that is fundamentally concerned with the color of one's skin or with the blood that courses through one's veins. Why? Because the book of Joshua has already told us about Rahab. Rahab is promised a place among the people of God. And we know from, as uh, Micah preached when we talked about Joshua chapter 2, we know from the whole Bible's context that Rahab's name appears twice in the New Testament. Once in Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Once in Hebrews 11 the hall of faith. What does this tell us? That the, early, or that the Jews of Jesus' day and the early Christians looked at Rahab not as a spy and traitor to be used for their military advantage and strategy, but rather as a heroic person to be emulated. The hall of faith takes sinful fallen people and says, here is what sinful fallen people are capable of when they trust in Yahweh. That's where we find Rahab's name. Likewise, Jesus said he came to the Jews, but not just for the Jews, he came for all people. And so why do we find Rahab's name in the genealogy of Jesus? As a signal to us that it is not purely a Jewish faith. You find in Jesus' genealogy someone who isn't Jewish. Someone who simply heard the work of God and submitted to him. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I'm not supposed to put it in the whole Bible context. So let's put Joshua 6.21 then in the context of the Exodus narrative. Joshua is telling a coherent story that builds on the story of Moses. Moses tells us about our beginnings in the book of Genesis and then the beginnings of the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. Well, if you know the book of Exodus, you might be aware of this part of the story. As the Israelites, after the ten plagues, flee Egypt, it says in Exodus 12, 37 through 38, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sikkath, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, and this important phrase, a mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. That phrase, mixed multitude, is a racial term. It means that those leaving, following the pillar of fire and the cloud that represent Yahweh were not merely Jews. There were Egyptians in their midst. Egyptians who had witnessed Yahweh put to shame every god that Pharaoh worshipped. The god of the Nile, the god of the sands, the god of the sun, the god of Pharaoh himself All conquered and enough Egyptians for Moses to believe that warranted comment went if that God can overcome all of mine I will follow him and they left a mixed multitude goes up so again this tells us that it is not about externalities what we look like even down to our flesh bones and chromosomes rather it is about the internal realities of who our hearts are in allegiance toward who do we serve who are we allied with where will we find our significance meaning or to use the theological term salvation let's back up even further low and let's put joshua 6:21 in the context of the book of genesis and the covenant to abraham In Genesis 15, 12 through 16, Moses records the following interaction on the covenant. "'As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for four hundred years.'" But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." The ESV Study Bible notes of this text that God's comment implies that the Amorites, who are the inhabitants of Jericho, they're a stand-in for the people of Canaan or the Promised Land in general, the Amor- Amorites will be dispossessed from their land by an act of divine judgment. At that time, it is because their accumulated iniquity, their accumulated sin, the ways in which they have transgressed God's law, will be so great that God can no longer tolerate their presence in the land. Again, this means that it is not about killing a different people group. This means that it is about judgment for sin. And by the way, lest the people of God get high and mighty that they are the ones entering the land and they are not among the Amorites, keep in mind Deuteronomy 9.5. Not because of your righteousness or your uprightness of heart are you going to possess the land but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord is giving the Lord your God is driving them out before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob now if we did a little bit of uh, exposition a little bit of excavation on this text, what we would find out is that the sins of the Amorites and the Canaanites included among them gross sexual sins. By gross, I don't mean icky, although that probably fits, but also gross is in number, so a lot of sexual sin, as well as child sacrifice by burning to the pagan god Molech. So let me be clear about this. This is not killing an ethnic people. This is not homophobia or misogyny, this is not racism, this is judgment on people who victimize the most innocent and fragile and vulnerable among their own people. There's a practical point to be made here for us. A Christian witness in today's culture, in today's world, will require a faithful Christian explanation of a pro-life stance. We need to be clear as we teach each generation what Christian ethics, and by Christian ethics I mean principles we can derive from the life of Christ, from the written word, from the way God created the world Principles we can derive about ethics, what they have to say for how we position ourselves to the most vulnerable among us, including the unborn, and what we consider in terms of our sex lives. We need to be clear about abortion, abortion facet facet birth control, and artificial reproductive technologies that instrumentalize human life and children Rather than honoring them as the gifts which God says that they are, we have no right to treat others as a means to our ends, friends, no matter how small. It's important to me, by the way, that those words are heard rightly, because I do not stand up here as somebody looking to condemn. I am not your judge, friends. If anything, if you are struggling in sexual sin or have been involved in any of uh, the things which Christian ethics would challenge—from abortion uh, to the, uh, from abortion to sexual sin—I want to you to hear this as rather than condemnation, as hopeful confrontation. Why is it hopeful? Because of what happens next in Joshua chapter six, Joshua six verse twenty-two through twenty-seven. But the two men who spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver, the gold, and the vessels of bronze and iron were put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belong to her, uh, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be man, the man who rises up and rebuilds the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations, and the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread, was, or his fame was in all the land. Here's the hope part of the hopeful confrontation. twice, Rahab's occupation is mentioned. Twice it is mentioned that Rahab is a prostitute. If you're familiar with ancient literature, you would find this unusual. Because Rahab needs no explanation. You see, in the ancient world, people rarely use two names. Often a first name would do, and if a first name wouldn't do, then they added in a different fact about somebody to help distinguish them from someone else. So, for example, we do this with American names, or at least this is where a lot of our American Anglo-Saxon or Germanic names came from. For example, uh, it is common that somebody has a last name that identifies them with a physical mark, brown, white, black, or it is common that somebody has a last name that associates them with a place of origin. My last name is Hurst. Hurst is an Anglo-Saxon word for a forested area next to a plain or a Rise with trees on it. Where did my people come from? A forested area next to a flat plain. As well, it can be associated with parentage. If you know somebody with the last name Johnson, John's son. Jackson, Jack's son. Erickson, Eric's son. Or occupation. Think maybe you have friends. Carpenter, Fisher, Smith. Occupations of a former culture and world. You see this all the time, by the way, when you read through the Gospels. If there's only one person with a particular name in Jesus' friend group, they only use that one name. But if there's more than one, they associate them in a different way. Judas of Iscariot. Why? Because there were two Judases in Jesus' midst. Here's the point. Rahab is not a Hebrew name. And by the way, you can flip through every page of this book. You know what you won't find? another character named Rahab. So why, then, feel the need to distinguish Rahab? What are you marking her out for? Because it's clearly not her identity. Rather than her identity being the thing I think Joshua is pointing to, I think he is pointing to the extent of God's salvation. Rahab is not saved by her own righteousness. Rahab is again and again a prostitute. She is saved by her surrender to God. Let's note two things about Rahab. In this text we see that Rahab and those saved with her are placed outside of the camp. What does that mean? They're outside of the people of Israel during the battle of Jericho. Why are they outside? Because right before the battle of Jericho the people ritually cleanse themselves circumcised the males, taking on the sign of the covenant, and then they ate the covenant meal. They had Passover, celebrated Passover. Rahab and her family have not done this. That's important because that is followed up by the second thing about Rahab, that the author notes she lived in Israel to this day. What does that mean? That at some point her and her family take on the covenant sign. At some point, they do undergo ritualistic cleansing, and at some point, the males among them take on circumcision. Here's what this means. They enter the people of God. They enter the community of God. And this tells us a very important thing about ourselves. We just have to ask one question. How on earth does a pagan prostitute get saved? by hearing about the work of the Lord, by hearing about his will and movement in this world, and surrendering herself into covenant relationship with him. Why is that important? Because, friends, that is exactly how I got saved. And if you, too, are a Christian, that is exactly how you got saved. Not a single one of us was saved because of our pre-Christian goodness— because of the resume we brought to God. Every single soul that will be saved is saved by faith alone, through grace alone, by the power of Christ alone, every one of us. Friends, this is important not just for our individual lives, but for us as a church as well. You may fear or be afraid or uncomfortable of what is taking place in our culture. You need to know that salvation and victory both come through faith alone. You see, remember again the strategy of God's people here. It is God himself, his might, his power, his sovereignty. But this Jericho, this, friends, is not the ultimate victory of the Bible. There is a greater Joshua who will bring A greater enemy down and who will enter with his people into a greater promised land. We've already talked about that greater Joshua. For those of you who missed it, the name Joshua means Yahweh saves. And it actually directs us forward to Jesus Christ because Jesus is simply the Greek translation of the name Yeshua, Joshua. And so the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ, comes in order to bring victory over God's enemies but get this he does not defeat God's enemies by shedding their blood instead he gives his own and you want to know why because he is not out first and foremost for the blood of the enemies of God but for their hearts because the greater enemy the greater enemy than Jericho will lose their lives as well but they will lose them symbolically as the stony walls of their hearts soften and fall flat with the gospel shout of God's people. Friends, Romans 5.10 is true of every single one of us. For while, if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more, now are we reconciled, shall we live, shall we be saved by his life? We all once stood in contrast to God as his enemies, but if you are in Christ, if you are saved today, it is because the stony, heart of, the stony wall of your heart fell when you heard the gospel proclaimed, when you heard the shout of God's people, the trust in his power, sovereignty, and might to save the pagan prostitutes of our world. And if you believe in that, then you have entered now and will enter more fully into the true land of Canaan, the true and coming promised land of God's kingdom, which will also be purchased or has been purchased with the shedding of blood to satiate God's wrath. But it was not ours. It was our Savior's. I believe that the reason why the Israelites had to go into the city of Jericho in order to conquer it with the sword is so that they would learn that one day, rather than the sons of Jericho having their blood shed, that God's son's blood would be shed so that we could enter the promised land. See, friends, I just don't think Dr. Dawkins' reading of Joshua 6.21 has anything on that. Because it's not me. It is by faith. In Christ alone. Would you bow and pray with me? <laughs> Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. We understand that when we come to it, we so often meet things in it which are difficult to understand, or difficult to apply, or difficult to wrap our minds around as long as we have the, the lenses of our culture on. Lord, would you help us see the world, not As fundamentally as Westerners, as Americans, as Arizonans, would you help us see the world as you created it, as you are working to redeem it? That is, would you help us see the world through Jesus Christ, through your Son, our God, our Savior? Father, would you help us be grateful and humble because of the reality that it is not because of anything in us which we are saved but it is because, Lord, you are mighty to save. As we already sung this morning, Lord, though my sins are many, your mercy is more. Would you help us understand and believe that even more as we rise to sing these songs in response? Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.